0: to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Cindy Goodness Zane, a licensed clinical psychologist and ICEEFT certified emotionally focused therapist, supervisor, and trainer in training. She specializes in emotionally focused therapy with couples, families, and individuals. Dr. Zane also co-facilitates trainings, conducts presentations, and provides consultation services for clinicians interested in emotionally focused therapy, as well as leads educational workshops for couples looking to enhance their relationship. Cindy, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Aaron. It's It's an honor to be here.
0: Thanks, and I'm really excited to have you. We have a really interesting... Uh, show here where you're going to tell us about attachment theory and emotions and the work you do with emotionally focused therapy. And I'm really excited to hear all about that. A lot of psychologists I know uh, practice with attachment theory as part of the work that they Mm -hmm. do. And it's a really important topic for therapists and also as as for the people who come seeking therapy, Uh, they benefit from that. And before we get into that, though, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you, about your background, how you got into this field, how your interest in this topic came about. Could you spend a little time telling us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, You know, I really wasn't looking at psychology at all. Um, And uh, in fact, my training in undergrad was in foreign relations, and uh, Japan was my area of specialty And I thought I was going to go work in Japan. Um, I knew that I was well-trained to go to law school, so I ended up going to law school back here at the University of Hawaii. And as life takes its course, I love being in the courtroom and being a trial attorney because I was always a very passionate person on the inside, even though probably I think most of my friends would say, you could never tell by looking at me from the outside. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to help the jurors understand and think and feel the way I wanted them to think and feel about my client and my case. You know, I think I love kind of the drama of human life mm-hmm. there. But along the way, you know, life happened. I encountered a, a, a bout with cancer. Mm-hmm. And just kind of going through that, I, I noticed, wow, you know, I'm a pretty good observer of myself and experiences and how to navigate challenges and that I could talk to other cancer Uh, survivors and help explain things to them or help them to figure out how they can best navigate their challenges. And that started to kind of get me thinking. Um, It reminded me that when I was in sixth grade, my best friend at the time, I was new to the school, and I happened to sit next to the boy that she was, in her words, boy crazy about.
2: Mm
1: And so she befriended me because I had sat next to the boy she had a crush on, and I didn't know this at the time. You know, she would call me. I would listen to her over the phone, talk about her boy crazy problems, mm-hmm. and she would say, "You know, you're a really good listener. You you ought to be a psychologist."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was like, "Okay," and really had no idea what that was, and really didn't look into it, and was focused in other goals or achievements but you know fast forward into my my late 20s early 30s um i noticed wow when i look at all the books that i read during my free time and the kind of you know musings i have in in my free time they were all about why do people do what they do yeah you know what moves them or or what gets them stuck what ends up being pitfalls to their relationships what makes them successful And so I was like, oh, you know, maybe I should look into the uh, the field of psychology. And so I went back to graduate school, and I thought I was going to work with people going through medical challenges, uh, cancer patients, psycho-oncology. But the more I studied, the more I just kept going back to emotions and wanting to understand them better, uh, wanting to know how do I make sense of them. And that eventually led me to relationships (laughs) And how emotions make so much difference for how we understand ourselves, how we understand ourselves with the key people that we want to be close to, uh, what has those interactions and relationships going awry, and what has them getting healed, becoming closer, more connected. And so I switch careers. The best thing about everything I do in my job is I get to work with couples and families. Mm -hmm. You know, it's wonderful. I get to work with, work in love. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. So I, I imagine that then led into the attachment, ish, the interest in attachment, because that's a big part of that.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think when one doesn't have the attachment lens and understand the pivotal role that emotions play in the music of relationships, it's very chaotic and disorienting, mm-hmm. and it's really hard to make sense of. Uh, When couples are in such anguish and heartache and um, fighting with one another, if you don't have the attachment lens and don't understand what's driving those behaviors and the meanings behind that, you know, it can leave the clinician feeling very um, disheartened, feel more like a referee, a Mm -hmm. problem solver, but then the same kinds of issues keep popping up and popping up. You find yourself just trying to address symptoms but never really getting at um, how do we make real and lasting change?
0: Yeah, any of us who have done couples therapy can really relate to that referee <laughs> yeah. piece, that and that can be so frustrating. Right. And so I think the approaches that you're talking about with the EFT are really fascinating and useful. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll definitely talk more about that today, and I'm looking forward to that. So I'm wondering if we can start off just by some real basic stuff that maybe you can help shed some light on the meaning of these things. And the first one, and you know this sounds almost like, maybe sound like a silly question to some people, but what's the deal with emotions to begin with? Like, <laughs> what are they and why do we have them?
1: Well, that's a great question. You know, I think pop culture wants to say or says a lot, you know, we need to be rational. If you have emotions, you need to set them aside and, and just use your thoughts. But emotions are just like our thoughts. They just come through us through a different medium. And I like to think they, they are signals. They're signals that our body uh, gives us, and they are fast signals. They're oftentimes the first sources of information that our brain will get. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference is, is we have to make sense of them. We have to know what is the signal that's showing up as a agitation mm. in our body. Or- so
0: I know I'm really feeling this, but... I'm not even quite sure what it is or where it came from.
1: Right, right, exactly. You know, is it stress, anxiety, fear? When I feel heavy, what is is that sadness? Is that depression? Mm. If I feel like, gosh, there's all this blood pumping and it wants to tell me to run, what does that mean? What is it telling me? What's triggering it? Uh, And we have to go and make sense of that. And so we have to take all of those bodily uh, sensations and signals, and use our uh, our thinking brains mm-hmm. to try to figure that
0: out. Mm-hmm. So, how do you just with your patients? I'm curious, how do you do that? Like, how do patients, uh, people, begin to figure <laughs> out what emotion they're actually feeling and what it means to them?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a um, that's a really good question because there are some based on the way they grew up, that they've mm-hmm. just more practiced at it. They've had loved ones who've taught them about emotions as they've grown up. And so they can more easily recognize those sensations in their bodies and discern those signals quite readily. Mm-hmm. And there are others of us, uh, I would you know, put myself in that category, who we grew up differently, who didn't have people who taught us, what does those signals mean? And what do we do with them that helps to meet those needs? And so the good thing about that is you can learn. Mm -hmm. And we try to say, okay, well, what are you experiencing in your body? As you talk about what that was like for you when you saw your partner walk away and you didn't know if he or she was coming back or not. Mm -hmm. And if they're at a loss for the feelings label, we just go to the body. Mm-hmm. and see what's showing up right there
2: because
1: mm-hmm. even as they're recounting the memory that experience becomes alive again in their body right there in my office and will slowly build from the bottom up
0: mm-hmm. it, you mentioned so you mentioned childhood as a mm-hmm. place where people are learning about their emotions could you tell us a little bit about that the role and function that emotions play in childhood development and maybe how the emotional experience is shaped by that. Because it, it sounds like that's sort of a, the foundation for when you get people as adults where you're trying to deconstruct what's going on with them and where it came from.
1: Right. And it's great to go to childhood, and we can even go further back into infancy,
0: uh-huh.
1: um, is that we are hardwired in our neural pathways, in our physiology, uh, to have emotions because it takes so much uh, caring and tending by others to raise an infant Mm -hmm. to survive. I mean, if you are just one baby out in the wilderness, if you think about evolution, the chances of survival are nil.
0: Right. Nil. (laughs) A baby can't do anything but squirm around. Correct.
1: (laughs) You know, a baby is hardwired to show joy when there is attending and responsiveness. And that reinforces the caregiver to do more of that, Mm -hmm. to promote more closeness. If baby is hungry, there will be a certain kind of cry. If the baby needs closeness or safety, they may cling in the clenching reactions.
0: So these are hardwired responses or behaviors that babies have that elicit a response in the parent.
1: Yes, precisely. Okay. I think
0: we're getting into attachment here. We are because okay. we,
1: we're talking about the, the key needs for survival of food, comfort, closeness, safety, that when the infant engages in these automatically hardwired behaviors, those behaviors, even crying, are designed to pull the caregiver to respond in a way that meets the needs for I need my diaper changed, Mm -hmm. I need to be held close because Mm -hmm. I'm scared, uh, I need food, and all of those are met by the caregiver. And as we grow through the lifespan of both childhood and adulthood, the degrees to which the caregivers respond to the emotion signals and the behaviors designed to meet the needs, uh, whether the caregiver meets them or not, sends information to that infant, child, teen, adult. If I have these emotions and I exhibit these behaviors, my needs will get met. Mm -hmm. Or if I have these emotions, exhibit these behaviors, and the needs aren't met, it tells the child, teen, adult, ah, that's not working for me. I shouldn't show those emotions and do those behaviors. I have to go to a plan B or C or D in order to try to get my needs met.
0: Mm-hmm. So the infant, the baby, the child is constantly adapting to the reaction and interaction with the parents or the caregivers.
1: Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we would um, hope that the plan A of inviting reaching by the infant, child, teen, adult, uh, gets the responsiveness of that significant other, and therefore security is built, safety is built, and that infant, child, teen, adult can go back out into the world and explore and thrive and feel comfortable making mistakes and be the best versions of themselves, or they have to keep adapting to try to get those needs met. And, you know, eventually if they keep trying to get those key needs for survival, belonging, nurturance, safety, acceptance. They keep trying to get these needs met in all these backup plans, and they still don't work with those key attachment figures or caregivers. Eventually, for safety reasons and to kind of stop the suffering, that individual has to start giving up Mm -hmm. and pulling back And find other ways, maybe with other people, to try to get those needs met.
0: So let's start with the plan A one. Is that something that would be referred to as secure attachments? Yes. So I'm assuming that's something we like to see, that people form secure attachments. So I think that's so important. Let's just highlight that a little bit more so... What has to happen for a secure attachment to take place? And you you mentioned stuff about safely exploring the world and forming relationships. Let's just talk a little bit more about the secure attachment then. And Let's say you're a parent. You're thinking, I'm going to have a, a child, and I want to make sure the child is forming a secure attachment here. What's the ingredients there?
1: Right. And, you know... Even though Bowlby kind of called his theory John Bowlby, who's the Mm -hmm. originator of attachment theory, he he labeled it attachment theory. Really, what we're talking about is the science of love. Mm -hmm. What goes into that is that the needs to have us be able to survive. Am I all alone and isolated in this world? Because that is a terrifying prospect. Mm -hmm. And we know whether you're an infant, that will lead to, even if you have food and oxygen and water, if you do not have comfort and caring and physical touch, they've observed that that infant will fail to thrive. Mm -hmm. Beyond infancy, even in adulthood, isolation is sort of the worst punishment, if you will. It's not necessarily imprisonment or death, it's isolation. In historic times, it would be exile. Mm -hmm. Because when one is isolated, it leads to anxiety, depression, and then eventually, despairing and giving up.
0: That need for for humans to really feel connected, wanted, accepted, belonging—that seems like a key piece for humans. I don't know if every animal is like that. Maybe they are, but for humans, for sure, that's a, a required piece for right s- for mammals, oh, for of mammals. which we
1: are one. Mammals are bonding, bonding species because we really are better together. And to kind of get back to your question that we are better together, you know, a term that's gotten a real bad rap, I think, uh, in the late 20th, 21st century has been dependency. Mm, mm
2: -hmm. And there's
1: such a striving and an emphasis for individualism and and independence. And really, when we talk about attachment and the science of love, we're really talking about healthy interdependence Mm -hmm. that lasts from cradle to grave. It's not just the infant that needs physical touch, uh, safety, comfort, reassurance. We all need to know, are you there for me? Am I important to you? Mm -hmm. Will you come when I need you, when I call?
0: And that's learned in childhood from the relationships that the baby forms with the caregivers.
1: Correct. We can see the same moves that a baby might make to elicit the parent to meet its needs, the inviting, the reaching, then maybe the protesting, then maybe the uh, kind of meltdown, Mm -hmm. and then the give up. We can see those same patterns of behaviors unfolding in relationships that are under the threat of separation, distance, isolation. And then eventually, we try to prevent that, but um, detachment.
0: Yeah, I recall watching a very interesting video that was um, presented by Sue Johnson. Mm-hmm. When I, I think there was a mom with a baby, and the mom was, you know, making faces with the baby, and they were the baby was laughing, and they were interacting, and that was it. Looked like just a typical mother-child interaction, and then the mother asked, and. I'm sure the mother was just mortified having to do this, but it was only for a couple of minutes, right? (laughs) So probably no permanent damage there. But the mother was told, just look at the baby's stone face. Don't react to the baby. And the baby tried so hard to get that reaction from the mother. Yes. And when the baby didn't get it, maybe after 30 seconds or so, she started throwing a tantrum and just looking just distressed and upset. The mom was still there. But she just was giving no reaction to the baby. And it must have been heartbreaking to the mom to do this experiment. And soon after, she started reacting to the baby again. So it wasn't cruel. But it was a very strong impression to me on how important that give and take is and in that interaction.
1: Right. You're referencing the uh, Edtronic series of experiments of the still face experiment. Yeah, okay. And then yeah. Sue Johnson came in and they did a parallel video of uh, the still face experiment with mother and infant and then a couple. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that's a painful but very illuminating video to watch as you describe everything the baby tries to do to get the mother's attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she looked so relieved when she finally was released
0: oh, <laughs> to be yeah. able
1: to respond to the baby. I know, I was
0: just thinking poor mom. So that's the good scenario is these secure attachments that form with these, with the babies and the children feeling that the parents are there for them, responding to them, uh, allowing them to feel their emotions and um, validating them. So what other direction does this go in terms of what it happens to the attachments when they're not like that in childhood?
1: Yeah, um, <clears throat> when those needs for... Acceptance or belonging, comfort, safety are not met by the caregivers. And most often, it's not an intentional Mm -hmm. not meeting uh, the child's needs. Uh, It could come from a a lack of knowing how Mm -hmm. to most efficiently meet those needs, or most often, transmitted through intergenerational parenting and caregiving, that uh, they, they don't know how to read the needs. They don't know how to uh, interpret the emotions and the behaviors as, oh, my child just needs some comfort. They may not have been taught how to value that. And so the responsiveness may be to um, interpret a child's protest as something negative, mm. And they may respond by, you know, saying that, hey, that's an inappropriate behavior. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's kind of the only way the child knows to say, I'm scared. Mm -hmm. is to kind of angrily protest, why weren't you there? But if the parent doesn't know how to recognize that and sort of read between the lines of that protest and say, oh, I wonder if you got scared, you thought I was going away and not coming back. You know, they may unintentionally give a response that sends a signal to the child, oh, it's not good to speak up when I'm scared. It's Mm -hmm. not good to speak up when I'm angry. But the feelings don't go away they just learn not to exhibit them and try to find some other coping behaviors to deal with those feeling signals maybe they shut them down they distract themselves throw themselves into other healthy behaviors what's most concerning is when people can learn to turn the volume down on those emotion signals because remember those emotion signals relay important information They tell us, oh, I really like this. I want more of this. Or, oh, this work environment is really too stressful for me. It's really worrying me out. It's causing me so much anxiety, which would say, hey, we need to kind of do something about that. But Mm. if they read those anxiety or stress signals as, oh, that's a problem with me, or Mm -hmm. that's not good to pipe up and talk to somebody about it, they may be laboring in kind of an isolation And not getting what they need and suffering for it. Mm. And so those sort of over time and kind of going to these default needs, which they can work sometimes, but they're not the most effective ways to get the needs met, Mm. that they begin to develop Mm. into patterns, both patterns within ourselves and patterns as we interact with others, whether it be friends, colleagues. Most notably, it'll be our significant others in our adult relationships.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so I'm thinking about a possible hypothetical scenario. You mentioned the child who may be really scared and doesn't know how to express that he's scared, and he has a tantrum or becomes very, very upset. Mm-hmm. The parents don't like that behavior. You're acting out. You're causing a disruption. That's not appropriate. Go to your room and calm down. So the feeling of feeling afraid isn't validated or acknowledged. The child learns, I better shut that down because that's not working. And becomes very good at stuffing the emotions because they're not safe.
1: Right. Becomes very good at stuffing and going to their room and... um Kind of walling off there yeah and that becomes the place of what seems like comfort i go away i take care of my own feelings um and then i can go back into uh, my family or my relationship and it's as if the original issue that stoked the problem the negative interaction uh never existed
0: And neither did my feeling.
1: Correct, correct. (laughs) That
0: feeling, whatever it was, was wrong, and I need to squash it out of me.
1: Correct. And then the the partner is, hey, are you going to talk about it? Are you going to bring it up? Or, oh, you just sweep it under the rug and forget about it. It's like my feelings and what I care about, what's important to me, is not important to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it can leave their partner feeling unimportant, not a priority, uncared for. And over time, those can become very rigid patterns. Uh, and what we do in um, Emotionally Focused Therapy as we try to understand what those negative patterns are, they get partners stuck mm-hmm. and feeling distant and disconnected from each other. We try to get a good sense of what are these rigid patterns uh, what are the ways in which the behaviors are coming out, the actions are coming out, that each partner is just trying to get their emotional, relational needs met with one another, but somehow, despite the effort, it's not working. Like maybe they're fighting for closeness, but it just keeps escalating out of control. Uh, maybe one is chasing to get closeness, and the other is recognizing the chase as, oh no, this is dangerous. So he or she is pulling back and you have something that looks a little bit like chase master that never meets in the middle Mm -hmm. because they tend to know when you ask them what brings you in it's like they keep having the same fight whether it's about the dishes or vacuuming or you know who's going to do pickup that no matter what the topic is it always feels the same Mm -hmm. there's never a true resolution even if they work out a negotiation and so we kind of get a sense what is that stuck pattern how's it playing out on the surface
0: so how important is it for you and the work you do with the couples to go back and take a look at the childhood patterns that they learned in their attachments understanding that and what they bring to their adult relationship is that a big part of the work that you do
1: it's a big part. It's not necessarily the initial focus. Mm. It inevitably comes up because when they think about, oh, I engage in this behavior, I pull away because when I see my partner's anger, I get scared. And the way I get comfort from that fear is I go to my room. And that example that you brought up earlier, let's say that partner goes to his or her room gets comfort, calms down, the fear goes away, uh, comes back to try to interact with their partner again. But, of course, they're not going to risk bringing that topic up that brought up their partner's anger that caused them to pull back Mm -hmm. and be scared in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, But we take a look at what is that pattern, and then where does that pattern come from? And as we get into the more vulnerable emotion, Because initially, people won't talk about what is vulnerable. They'll talk about, I felt angry, Mm -hmm. or it was stressful, or I felt like my partner was disrespecting me. But as they increase the safety, and they're more comfortable to identify these vulnerable parts of themselves, inevitably, they'll start talking about the fear. And in tapping those fear places inside of them, it can unlock bodily memories of, oh my gosh, I understand why I go to my room now. My parents used to send me to my room Mm. all the time when I would have these terrible meltdowns. Mm -hmm. And I got to feel more comfortable in my room. I'd rather be there.
0: So is identifying those underlying emotions that are driving this an important piece? Yes, Mm
1: -hmm. most definitely. Uh, In fact, that is one of the most pivotal elements, if you will, that we look for. Emotion kind of has a, a process, and this comes from Magda Arnold that's in, incorporated in Sue Johnson's model of emotionally focused therapy. You know, we don't just look at the, the, the feeling itself, what we might label as sad, alone, scary, shameful. We look at what are the thoughts mm-hmm. that you tell yourself about yourself, about your partner, when you're feeling scared that your partner is unhappy with you. Mm -hmm. So we look at the the meaning systems, the view of self, the view of other. We look at the emotion itself, both the surface emotion that you might show outwards to your partner and the the tender vulnerable emotion that you keep hidden on the inside. Mm -hmm. And then we look at when that vulnerable emotion gets stirred up inside of you, what does that feel like in the body? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are those sensations? Because those are the the, the bottom up elements that will let somebody know. Oh, I'm feel I'm detecting this,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and when they start to pair it with the label of let's say fear, that's how they come to know it, and they can then start to build on shortcuts. Oh, when I feel that niggly feeling in my my abdomen there, that tells me I'm starting to get a little scared.
0: Yeah. So I wonder if you can give us an idea, are there a couple of real classic attachment patterns that you see over and over again in terms of this is the type of style that a person adapted to and they're coping growing up and dealing with emotions that tend to play out time and time again? in the rest of their life in adult relationships and other situations like what are some typical ones that you see frequently
1: yeah um that's a great question we tend to see three core patterns um which is you know there's there's only three Mm -hmm. and so it's easy to spot when you know what you're looking for Uh, the most common one is what we call a pursue withdraw kind of pattern And that can look as if one one partner is demanding, critical, protesting of the other partner, and the uh, other partner will view the demands, the criticisms, the protests, it'll land on them as nothing I do is ever good enough. Mm -hmm. I will never make him or her satisfied. And that can be very heavy, very Mm -hmm. devastating for the receiving partner. And out of feeling not good enough, maybe that might tap some shame, that partner can withdraw. Mm -hmm. So we have sort of one partner moving forward, oftentimes for connection, but doing it in a way that is not designed to get connection. It kind of pushes Mm -hmm. the other partner away. And so you have one partner moving forward and the other partner moving back. Mm -hmm. So that's one pattern, pursue, withdraw.
0: Sure. So the pursuer desperately wants to connect with the other person, but their manner of doing it is pushing the other person away. The other one's saying, I'm putting up my walls and my boundaries because you're coming at me and I don't like this and I don't know what to do. Correct. I'm just going to shut down. Yes. Which must be hell for the pursuer. That's exactly what they don't want.
1: Yes. It's as if they're both sort of trying to get comfort connection with the other, but One is moving towards to try to get connection. The other is moving away to try Mm -hmm. to get safety Mm -hmm. and then come back and get connection. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're both doing opposite behaviors that prevent them from being able to meet in the middle together. But the intentions are very good.
0: Both want connection.
1: Both want connection. Both want safety. It's just the action tendencies that they're doing are not, designed to help them meet that need so that's the most common pattern the pursue withdraw the second pattern is attack attack or defend defend uh, Is the
0: attack attack the one where, where the therapist feeling like we're dodging daggers the whole time?
1: <laughs> yes, sometimes we, we uh, get caught in the middle. Right. Uh, sometimes we find ourselves being observers to a boxing match that we can't let happen, uh, you know, go on in our office. Yeah. And so it's sort of uh, alarming. What do we do?
0: Yeah, So what, so what's going on in attack attack?
1: Yeah, um, you know, at the heart of it, both partners are fighting for closeness, fighting for connection, fighting to be heard, fighting to be understood. They're so feistily trying to get through to the other. And again, the, the way they think that they can be successful getting through to the other by protesting, arguing, asserting their position collides with the other person who has the same style and then it becomes ineffective they end up colliding and it can escalate out of control or they have to cap it somehow but they don't know how to actually talk about i'm really longing to just kind of know you understand me Mm -hmm. and so that's the uh, attack attack sometimes it can look like i'm perceiving you attacking me so i'm defending um, whether that's in anticipation mm-hmm. or on the receiving end. Um, so we we'll call that defend-defend. Uh, but it's something that out of both parties kind of trying to shoot BB guns at one another, they just keep escalating.
0: Yeah. And then the third one was?
1: The third pattern, um, this one we don't see as often, but is what we call a withdrawal-withdrawal.
0: Mm. Ships passing in the night?
1: Can be, Uh can be. More often it takes the the form of, uh, it was one of the two previous patterns, but now one or both partners are starting to give up Mm. and pull back. Um, You see a discernible drop-off in energy and investment towards connection. In large part because they feel they've tried in their respective ways that they know how, That's where childhood comes in, right? That they know how, they've given it everything they can to try to make the relationship work. And when they've exhausted everything they know and they don't know what else to do anymore, partners find themselves filling in that blank of, maybe we're not meant to be together. Maybe I've just gotta kinda do my own thing, hang with my friends. That's how I can get, you know, my emotional relational uh, health and uh, aliveness. And, you know, whether they choose to stay in the relationship or not, there is a lot of distance and very little energy flowing between the two partners. Mm -hmm. And that can be very difficult for the clinician because you have to kind of rekindle the energy somehow.
0: Yeah. Well, so for these different types, then, let's talk about the pursuer what are some likely developmental factors that lead a person to a pursuer type of dynamic in a relationship?
1: Well, if you think about it, there, there is a sense of normalcy because we all come into the world as pursuers. Uh-huh. Uh, we all have to reach for what we need. Where it can become stuck or too much is when there's been inconsistent responsiveness by caregivers or significant others Mm -hmm. so when we reach that sometimes the caregiver has been responsive and therefore the infant the child the teen cannot tell when their needs will be met or not so they might keep moving towards and moving towards and moving towards Uh, and every time you move towards and you are disappointed with non-responsiveness you know we all I think tend to turn the volume up Mm -hmm. increase the frequency increase the um, intensity to say do you hear me do you see me maybe if I just do it a little bit louder you'll get me and then eventually it's at a point of escalation where the receiver can no longer either ignore it or finally grabs their attention. But by that time, uh, the person who's been trying to get their needs met is really at a state of a lot of distress. Mm -hmm. It's the inconsistent responsiveness that tends to promote the pursuer to keep increasing the frequency intensity Mm -hmm. of how they try to get those needs met.
0: If I just yell louder, I push harder, I do this long enough, eventually I'll get what I need. Right. And I'm not getting it, the normal way of just asking for it and getting it. So I've got to really make my needs known until they finally get here. Right. And if that works some of the time, I learn, I just keep trying and and eventually I'll get my needs met.
1: Right. Eventually my partner will hear me and come be with me.
0: Mm -hmm. And what about the withdrawer?
1: the compliment comes up the opposite comes up as the pursuer keeps moving closer or trying to keep reaching ramps up the frequency the intensity perhaps it goes into criticism demand protest why don't you want to spend time with me you never spend time with me Mm -hmm. Uh, you don't want to do things with me that lands on the withdrawer as oh gosh this person who I love and care about, who I try to do everything for, is never satisfied. I must not be doing it right, well enough, even with my best efforts. I can't make him or her happy. Mm -hmm. And they start to pull away because that starts to eat away at them on the inside.
0: So developmentally, would a person learn that kind of pattern by just never being good enough or doing well enough to satisfy the needs of their caretakers or the people around them?
1: They commonly have received the message that if they perform well, they get the positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. If they don't perform well, they don't get it, can Mm -hmm. be one message they got from childhood. Another could be that just showing any emotion was not uh, met with approval, Mm -hmm. was not responded to could have been met with even harsher reactions of disapproval or punishment. And therefore, they've learned to shut down their own emotions, because if they show anything, that gets a negative response. And when they say, see emotion on others, that signals danger. Mm. And so they want to get away from emotion in order to just restore safety back in their body so that they can come back and be thinking and be kind of online and present mm-hmm. with their partner so uh, that can be a you know really kind of anxiety ridden uh, moments for withdrawers
0: mm-hmm. so just having the emotions experiencing them expressing them experiencing other person's emotions is uh can be terrifying <laughs> Absolutely. and withdraw from that because this is not going to lead to something that I'm going to be comfortable with here.
1: Correct. Nothing good is going to happen from uh, this emotionally ridden moment.
0: Yeah. So I want to switch gears for a moment, and then we're going to come back to the relationships because that's so interesting here. I'm just wondering about this concept about attachment and emotions and relational dynamics. Is there anything that can be said about gender differences, cultural differences in terms of the way that they are developed and expressed? I know that's a very open-ended question, but I'm curious to see if you have any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I I think uh, the research and both the lived experience shows us that it's both. The universal language of the music of the dance of life is emotion. And studies have shown, and this is through um, Paul Ekman about facial uh, expressions and whatnot, that there are, depending on which studies you look at, six to eight universal emotions Mm -hmm. that exist in all cultures, whether you're looking at the most highly developed cultures or you're looking at uh, more traditional cultures. They all show up on the face in the same way. Sadness, for instance, or anger, fear, shame, disgust. And so we've noticed these commonalities Mm. across cultures throughout the world.
0: And this is something where anybody from any culture could observe anybody in any other culture and know what emotion they were experiencing because of their facial expressions.
1: Yes, we're actually hardwired to recognize uh, the facial expressions of others. Mm -hmm. We may not always get it right, but our brain will pick up, I call them spidey senses, but they're mirror neurons, mm-hmm. that they're designed to pick up that there's something emotional happening based on slight micro expressions in the person they're looking at. The brain detects that in one millisecond.
0: That's really fascinating because you can, I can imagine in a relationship, a person is responding to somebody else, has just a visceral reaction, an emotional response, and may not even be able to articulate why. But if they're, if they're interpreting in a microsecond some aspect of the emotional experience of the other person, that reactivity could cause that.
1: That's precisely right. You know, lots of times people will say, you know, I, I knew that if I get angry, it, it won't go well. But all of a sudden, the anger erupted. And another part of my brain is saying, why did I do that?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's exactly neuro. These things are going so fast. It is happening quicker than our uh, smart brains, prefrontal cortex, can consciously recognize. Hmm. And so the mirror neurons will pick up on the emotions of another in one millisecond. In three milliseconds, it'll reproduce it in our own bodies.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. So it's happening on a precognitive level. Correct. And
1: then at about 11 milliseconds, that's when the prefrontal cortex can discern it.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so you see that there's a six to seven millisecond gap there where the body is already reacting to what it detects on the face of another before conscious awareness has had time to process, identify, and come up with a plan. Mm -hmm. But what we can do is when we, we notice that in the office and see it actually playing out in front of us as EFT clinicians, that when we bring that to partners' attention, that eventually they can become more aware of it and slow themselves down and see it playing out in their lives with their partners, that they can start recognizing the juncture. Oh, this is where I used to say something snarky, but when (laughs) I do, that upsets or hurts my partner's feelings. Uh So maybe I won't say something snarky right now. Maybe I might try to remember, oh, my partner wants just wants me to understand them.
0: Yeah, and I, I imagine also recognizing I have the urge to say something snarky, and why is that right now? Because that's not something that's consciously decided. It's a reaction to some experience that person's having on the inside that's triggered by something going on in the interaction, I suppose.
1: Right, it goes that fast. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we know to look for that. And then we can often spend, you know, fifty minutes in a session in something that took place in under a minute mm-hmm. for the couple back at home.
0: So you're really slowing down these interactions, taking a look at very in terms of actual time interactions that may have taken a minute or less and spending time just microanalyzing the reactions inter reactions with each other about what's going on in the moments.
1: Yes, we're following the emotion very closely and how it shows up on the face, in the body, not just the words that are articulated, but in the tone, Mm -hmm. the volume, the intensity. A look in the eye or a shrug of the shoulder can say so much. We may not know what that is just upon seeing it, but if we inquire, I notice when I said, your partner turned away from you your shoulders slumped there Mm. what happened inside as I said your partner turned away from you that caused your shoulders to slump there Uh, and we'll just kind of understand well that was an important signal what's that telling you Mm -hmm. and how do we make sense how do we bring that out so that your partner understands you more in that moment Mm -hmm. that when he or she turns away that that has a devastating effect on you deflates you causes you to slump your shoulders maybe causes you to feel sad my partner doesn't want to be with
0: me so all of this is going on inside the person who's slumping the shoulders i'm having this feeling i'm having this physical reaction to it i'm having these thoughts that are associated with it demoralized sad. he doesn't care about me because he's turning away those kinds of things go on and um, it sounds like it's important for the partner to understand that that's what's going on with the other person yes and why is that
1: to understand the impact that they're having on their partner Mm. and most of the time what we discover is when we ask the other partner who has turned away They'd say, oh, I I didn't know that that's the impact that my wife or husband was feeling. Mm -hmm. And what will often come out is, I was turning away because I was starting to get angry, and I didn't want to have you impacted by my anger. Uh That, That there are good intentions for them to turn away, that they weren't ever intending to cause their partner to feel that they were losing me.
0: So a lot of misinterpreting happening. Yes. Misinterpreting of the other's emotional experience and what's going on with them. I'm slumping down because I feel sad because I feel like you don't want me. Uh, I think you're slumping your, your because you've just fed up and you've had it with me. Right. I'm turning away because I'm feeling angry and I know I don't want to take it out on you because right. I don't want to hurt you. You're turning away because you don't care, and you've just had it, and you're done. So it sounds like a lot of misinterpreting of behaviors and emotions happening between the couple.
1: Right, and that's always going to happen. The stuckness comes in not being able to safely be able to talk that out with one another, Mm -hmm. because then it just goes right back into the negative patterns, either the pursue-withdraw, the escalation, or withdraw-withdraw.
0: So we, we talked a little bit about culture, and I thought that was really interesting that studies have shown these universal emotions that are, that are hardwired, and that makes a lot of sense. Is there anything you can say about gender? Are there commonalities? And, and I know that this may not be hardwired, it may be socialization we're talking about, but what do you see in terms of gender factors when it comes to emotions, attachment, and relationships?
1: In a general way, we we are all hardwired similarly, the same. However, our socialization of boys and girls are very different.
0: Wait, so back up a second, Cindy. So men and women, boys and girls, all feel fear. Yes. Anger, sadness, disgust, grief, guilt, whatever the, the, the eight were. They all feel, they're all feeling that at infancy. Yes. They all have that capacity. Yes. Equally. Yes. Okay. Yes. I just wanted to highlight and make sure that no, that's I was, a great I was point. correct about that. Okay. Yeah,
1: no, that's a great point. However, how we socialize across the genders is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, society expects women to be and th- this has been changing over the recent decades. Sure. You know, in a general way, society has expected through throughout history that women are more nurturing, that they will show more of those tender emotions. What's not so well tolerated from women is is when they are self-assertive, when they might show anger. Uh, it can be revered in men as being strong, but when a woman it, it might sh- display the equal amount of anger, that has not been well regarded. Mm-hmm. I can think of some labels that tend to come out sure. in that Sure, there's women some, there. There's
0: some negative labels toward women who assert themselves and show strong emotions that are not typically tolerated stereotypically. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, and then the opposite for men. Right. Boys aren't encouraged to cry, for instance, if they're feeling sad. You know, that can be, uh, they can be given messages of, oh, you have to shut that down that if you show emotion, particularly tender or vulnerable emotion, you're weak. There is a lot of shaming that goes on for boys when they have emotions and they display them more freely. But, you know, there is a lot more regard when they show things like anger mm-hmm. or, or more powerful emotions, mm-hmm. so uh, it's very tricky. Just kind of going back to culture, what's interesting about culture is while universally we are all hardwired the same, What's a beautiful thing about culture is when our meaning systems and how we make sense of behaviors and relationships and values come through the cultural lens, we can really appreciate and embrace how unique each culture and each uh, group of people are. Mm. And so I like to say that uh, you know, we are all hardwired very similarly and we all have emotions and we all want to bond, need to bond. And how we express that, that comes through our cultural lenses, it sort of brings out the beauty in all of us.
0: Hmm. Yes. Do you have any interesting examples, say, I don't know, just off the top of my head, Japanese culture? Like what would be like a some kind of a typical Japanese Way of expressing an emotion that would be very meaningful there that might be different in another culture.
1: Uh, I think uh, what's common in Japanese culture is there's this uh, there's this concept of honne tatemae, what you show outside the home and what you reserve for inside the home. Mm. Outside the home, and it's very important to be a cohesive group. You know, one may not express protest, may not show anger certainly not more vulnerable emotions, Mm -hmm. they may only show a smile, Mm -hmm. uh, which to uh, people from other cultures will, will look like, oh, they're okay with that, they're smiling. They must be all good with the plan, so to speak, or this must not have been a problematic interaction. But they will reserve that for more private, very intimate settings inside that their true feelings, their true emotions may come out.
0: And I imagine then in the context of Japanese culture, people understand this. And so there's a lot of nonverbal understanding about the pleasant smile or the behavior and that there may be more meaning behind that than meets the eye. But in a cross-cultural experience with people who don't understand I could see there be uh, the potential for misunderstandings.
1: Oh, yeah, completely. I think there is a lot that's been written post-World War II about cross-cultural interactions, mm-hmm. uh, engaging in the, in the business culture, mm-hmm. uh, where there is a, a misreading of outward displays of emotion, behaviors. But when you know the culture, you can then understand the protocols and live it like they do.
0: Sure. So let's speak a little bit about EFT, and can you tell us a little bit, I mean, you've touched upon it a bit so far, but what does EFT look like? Yeah, That's emotionally focused therapy, the kind of therapeutic practice you do with couples, and tell us a little bit about what that looks like in your office with a couple.
1: Ah, well, EFT um, is really designed to take a look at how is a couple interacting that is preventing them from experiencing the connection that they desire in their relationship. We'll ask them things like, what does it look like when you're feeling the closest with one another? What does it look like when you experience distance or disconnection with one another? Tell me about your most recent fight. Uh, We'll ask these attachment-oriented questions to assess what, type of pattern do they have? And what we're looking to do is understand what's the insecurely attached pattern. How do we restructure that pattern into a secure attachment way of interacting? Mm. And so we wanna understand the negative pattern. We wanna understand what's driving the negative pattern from the vulnerable emotions level and the outward behaviors that maintains the negative pattern. and. When we de-escalate that negative pattern and they're able to talk with one another, sit and listen with one another about there are these fears, these, they feel alone, they feel sad, um, they're longing to be heard or understood or needing sense of safety, needing to feel accepted that everything I do is not a complete failure in your eyes or it doesn't matter how you do it, you make mistakes or not, I love you anyway.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, when they can hear each other and talk to one another, then we can work on restructuring those bonds.
0: Yeah, you mentioned earlier that when we're talking about attachment, you really like to say we're talking about love. Mm -hmm. So can you expand upon that for a moment?
1: Yeah, you know, there's been a a lot over um, history about what is love. Yeah, Uh,
0: lots of music, lots of poems, lots of movies. That's a common topic. Right. So what is love?
1: You know, until Sue Johnson, who really built on John Bowlby's work, uh, there really hasn't been a comprehensive theory and understanding of what is love. People have said it's an emotion. But when we look to the emotion research, it's not one of the universal emotions. Not one of those
0: eight? Right? No.
1: In fact, it encompasses all of them. It's not simply an action or a value, but it really is a comprehensive survival mechanism, One of the most powerful, the most effective survival mechanism that we have. It consists of what enables us to thrive is secure attachment, when we know that our partner, our parents, are there for us. We're important to them. Our pain matters to them. They're going to keep us safe and secure. They've got our backs. My, my husband, my wife has my back. We can come home from work and tell them how it was great, how it was stressful, how it was painful, and they get us and they understand us uh, and vice versa. And that takes it all away
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we can go to sleep and get up the next day launch off of for that safe haven secure base go back out into the world be the best versions of ourselves do it all over again explore experiment make mistakes refine them come back again get resource get rejuvenated we can co-burden the hard things of life because Because sometimes life happens to us. Mm -hmm. The threat is when something disrupts that connection, Uh, when distance opens up for some reason that makes our partner, our loved one, kind of unavailable to us when we need them. Mm -hmm. The pathway to healing is to restore that connection and close the distance and the separation.
0: It's like the baby and the mother. Yes. It's like the baby and the mother. The baby is happy and connected with a mother. The mother gets stone-faced, the baby gets scared, the mother engages and the baby feels safe again.
1: Absolutely, it's this constant dance cycle that we go through about feeling connected, attuned, understood. We maintain that something in life or something happens that knocks us out of our attunement with our partners. Uh, But when we know how to get back in attunement, that's what separates those with close, connected, long-lasting relationships from those where their relationships are heading into dissolution or unhappiness. Uh, That is the single most uh, significant difference. It's not that those with satisfactory marriages argue any more or less. It's that they know how to reconnect Mm -hmm. after coming out of attunement.
0: Mm -hmm. Cindy, are there any other final thoughts or comments that you have on this subject for us that we've spoken about today that you'd like to leave us with?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, whether it's in a friendship, a parent-child relationship, a marriage, a family, a society, we really are better together.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: No one person is a jack of all trades. No one person can do it all. But when we draw on the resources of our close others and we learn to co-resource life with one another, boy, can we do amazing things. We can feel amazing. It can shoulder the hard times. It can shoulder the painful times. And we come out of it on the other end together.
0: Cindy, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Aaron. It's uh, it's been an honor and a pleasure.
0: Dr. Cindy goodness Goodnessane spoke with us today about emotions, attachment, adult relationships, and love. I should I should <laughs> add that to the title. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikahealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.